Okay, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we have been, since the beginning of the year, we have been looking at um, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you recall that as we've gone through this, we've put together an outline that, that comes from chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus Christ himself told John that he was going to give him a revelation concerning the things which were, the things that are, and the things that will be. And in that then, we saw that in the things that have been, there was a message to John in the first chapter. Then the things that are, are referring to these messages to the churches that we're going through currently. And then after we get done with these messages to the churches, which now looks like it'll be the end of February, um, we'll start moving into the message of the future. And again, when we go into the message of the future, just keep in your mind, we're actually going to take a little hiatus, um, a little sock rabbit trail on concepts of prophecy, where we're going to be looking at progressive revelation, and we're going to be looking at Old Testament prophecy as a way of building the foundation of fully understanding the prophetic nature of the book of Revelation. I think many people don't understand a lot of things that are going on in the book of Revelation. That's not to set myself up above them, but just to say that I think that there are many misunderstandings about it, because um, too many people focus fully on the New Testament without understanding the foundation of the Old Testament. And so we need to go back there to build the foundation so that we fully understand what we're going to be looking at when we go into chapter 4 and beyond. And so currently we're looking at the, the letters to the churches. We saw that there's a, the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, the church of Pergamos, the church of Thyatira, the church of Sardis, the church of Philadelphia, and the church of Laodicea. And today we want to do talk about the letter to the church of Pergamos. And um, Steve has already read this in chapter 2, but we're going to look at the same outline that we have looked at for each of the, the churches so far, and that is the introduction of Christ, the commendation of Christ, the uh, challenge of Christ, and then the promise. And so, if you look back at Revelation chapter 2, beginning of um, verse 12, we see that we have again a letter that is written to the church of Pergamos, and it is given to the angel, and by this time you all understand that the word angel in the Greek is actually angelos, and angelos means messenger, messenger. Okay, so not necessarily is this a, um, a personal angel, a personal uh, cherub or a seraph that is um, focused on that one church, but rather this is to the messenger of the church of Pergamos. And so probably an individual, um, a leader, church leader, who was um, going back and forth from that church to John while he was on the island of Patmos. And so this letter was written to him to take back to the church of Pergamos. And so as we see what is being now told to them, in this, um, in this introduction, is that Jesus describes himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, when John was describing what he saw when he saw Jesus, he described this individual with the burning brass legs, also as one who had a sword protruding out of his mouth. In Revelation chapter 19, if you want to look back there at some point, you can. You go check me out on this. It's on, also on your sermon note sheet if you have it. We're told that when, when Christ comes back for the battle of Armageddon, that he comes on a white horse, his name is Faithful and True, and that proceeding out of his mouth is the sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus says he is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. We know that as well from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, that we're told that the word of God is what? living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow into the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, 
but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him who, whom we must give account. Now, in chapter 4, and this is not to take a big break there from this, okay, but you can go check me out on this, but in Hebrews chapter 4, this comes right on the heels of the writer, the author of Hebrews, whether it's Paul or Barnabas or whoever it is, writing to the, to the Hebrews about their rest, their promised rest, and how the promised rest wasn't the promised land, but there was a rest still to come. And then he says about the word of God. And so I believe, and you can see from verse 13, I believe that though it's not capitalized in our Bible, remember, whenever you see the word God, Lord, Word, Him, whatever, it's not capitalized in the Hebrew, it's not capitalized in the Greek. That is the translator's interpretation. That's when the translator becomes an interpreter. Does everybody understand that? Okay. They've assumed at that moment that when they translated Him or He, that it was talking about God, or Christ, or any uh, manifestation of God, and so therefore they capitalize it. Okay? So therefore, in, in chapter 1 of John, when it says, in the beginning was the word, and you see in your Bibles probably that the word there is capitalized. It wasn't capitalized in the Greek. It was just logos. Okay? And so, but the translators have interpreted that to mean that it was Jesus Christ. Well, here, they've just did what? They've said, it's not. I think, potentially, it is. That this is the word of God, that Jesus Christ is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And he is able to divide the, between the division between the soul and the spirit, the joints and mirror, and the cern of the thoughts and the tense of the heart. And there is no creature that is hidden from his sight. Does that make sense? Okay. Because he is the one to whom we must give what? Account. When we die and we go before the seat, the judgment seat, whose judgment seat is it? The judgment seat of Christ. Okay? And so Christ is the judgment. All judgment was given unto him from the Father. And so he is the one to whom each one must be given account. And we're gonna, this is going to play a part in a moment. Well, not a moment. You know how long I preach. Anyways, this will play a part in five hours. No, no anyways. But, uh, anyways, yeah, sorry. You'll, you'll be up and moving. The food that we have covered this dinner, the food will be nice and hot and smelling, and, and, and I'll be closing my message down quickly. Anyways, but at the end of the message, that's going to come apart again, okay? So just kind of keep it in your mind. If I forget it, you remind me of it and say, Bob, remember that was going to come apart. And I'll say, oh, yeah, 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 it does play into that. Okay? So, but it's to whom we must give an account. So it's really exciting because the Word of God, Jesus Christ is the living Word of God, but he gives us then the written Word of God, right, which is what we read. And the Word of God is that which is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Now, does anybody know what, let me just stop, just put it up. Does anybody know what a two-edged sword is? Some of you do. What's a two-edged sword? What is it, Andrew? A sword that both sides is sharp. Good. It's a sword that both sides is sharp. Okay, that's good. That was the easy part. Okay, now the, the tougher part. What's so special about it? It can cut both ways. Okay. Anybody else? It can cut both ways? They're expensive. Uh, ben? They were expensive. They were expensive. Not many people had a two-edged sword. Roman soldiers carried a one-edged sword. It was blunt on the one side, and it was sharpened on the other side. It cost more money to have both sides sharpened and then maintained. And so they would walk around, and they would have the blunt side on one side, so they would have to know which side was sharp. And so you can see how I'm turning my hand so that my, the sharp edge is to the front, right? So when they're fighting, they've got to continue to do this. But if you had a double-edged sword, and those who were fierce warriors had the double-edged sword, they would be able to cut both ways. So as they walked in, they were just slicing going through the, through the, the, um, the battle line. Okay, now, 
the word of God can cut both ways. It can cut you coming this way, and it can cut you on the backswing, can't it? Do you ever read the word of God thinking that you're doing okay, and all of a sudden it sneaks up on you? The word of God can slice you in a condemnatory way, but the word of God can slice you in an encouraging kind of way. If you read this concept of, from about the word of God and about how living and powerful it is, and sharper the sword, sword, when we come down and we now look to the vision of the soul and the spirit, you know I got this little thing here. There we go. We, the, the soul and the spirit, and I'm not good at that, but the joints and marrow, okay? Does that sound more like a sword to you or more like something else to you? It sounds more like a scalpel, doesn't it? Isn't it kind of fun that the weapon of warfare is also for God a tool to cause us to grow in His grace and knowledge, to cut out the, the, the cancer in, in, the, in, the, in the ucky part. There is toddler church for ages 3 to 6, so if they want to do that, okay? So, and so we have then this two-edged sword, and so we know that Jesus Christ then, we're told, is the one who has the two-edged sword. Now, his commendation now to them is, is an exciting commendation as well. And he goes on, he says, I know your works, first of all. I know your works. Now, remember, he said that to the, to the, to the Ephesians, but then he came back and he kind of slammed them. But for them, I think that he means this. He says, I know your works. Secondly, I know your dwelling place. But note what he says about this dwelling place of theirs. He, he starts to define about where they live. I know where you live. And where do you dwell? You dwell where Satan's throne is. And then he goes on and talks about their faithfulness, their faithfulness and such, uh, how they denied not the faith, and we'll talk about this in a moment. He says, who was killed among you where Satan what? Satan dwells. Pergamus, Pergamus was seen to be, of all places in the, in the province of Asia, Mysia, in that area, the center of religion and religious practices. To the Christian, to the godly, that meant that it really was the throne of Satan. It was where Satan dwelled. Now, literally, is it where Satan dwells? Maybe it was. I mean, that's what it says. I don't think it's what Jesus really meant, that he literally, Satan actually set up his house there. But I think that he centered his operations out of Pergamos. I don't think that there was a... I think that, um, that Jesus wouldn't have said it otherwise. But do I fully understand it? I don't understand it, but I believe it to be true. And so in this there... When we see this, we're going to see in a moment how Pergamos then became this hotbed for all this false religion. Okay? And it went on. Come into the United States for a moment before we move on with this. There are many people who say that the Four Corners area of the United States, that's where Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah meet, is Satan's Corners. Um, there used to be a highway there, 666. They changed it. Because of all the... But if you've ever talked to anybody, and I've known a few people, um, some of you know the McGowans, some of you also know the... Um, um, Cindy... The Springers, thank you. The Springers are there. They both confirmed to me about the satanic presence in Albuquerque and that, that whole area. It's just an amazing thing. Um, Asheville, North Carolina, up in the mountains, is a hotbed of New Age-ism. Um, out there in the Arizona area, that's where the, um, they have all those alien stuff, you know, and, uh, what's, what's that called? What is it? 
Nevada, but there's some place in, in Arizona that's Roswell. Roswell, that's New Mexico. All right, there we go. Four corners. Anyways, in that area, it's amazing. Anyways, but they talk about Hobbit. You guys have come from that area. Tucson. How close was that four corners? Okay. Did you, I mean, did you ever hear that when you were down that way? No, the 666 highway went through southern Arizona by Douglas. Right. Also, yeah. Right, yeah, it went up through. Because it went up into Colorado. Because we used to, years ago, we'd jump on that going up there. And we changed its name. Yeah, they did. That's that. People were stealing the roadside. Yeah, see? It's just an amazing thing. Anyways, yeah. Not the one that I want in my house. Anyways, but... In, in Pergamos, there were temples to four Greek gods. Now, they were the great Greek gods. And so they had a temple to Zeus, okay? And these are going to be pictures, and they're under the trees, and if you can see that, that's the, the foundation for the temple of Zeus. And then they had a temple to Athena. Then they had a temple to Dionysus. And then one to the Asclepion, who was the, the god of healing. Asclepion was actually a, supposed to be a, um, a son of... Um, of Hermes, I think, anyways, and was able, now this is ex interesting, because many people would come here for the Asclepion temple, they would come because there would be healings that would go on there, in fact, they believed that people could even be raised from the, the dead, and so that they would have visions, and that, that in, their, in their dreams, the priests and priestesses' dreams, they would have ways of healing, and so, um, but each one of these um, temples also had with it temple prostitution, and so um, there was um, sexual morality that, that tinged in with each of these. They also had a temple to Serapis. Anybody know who Serapis was? Serapis was a, a kind of a Greek god, okay? But it was really an Egyptian god. Um, Ptolemy I, when Alexander the, uh, the Great died, his kingdom was split into four. And so the Ptolemies took over the southern portion, and they became great and powerful, okay? And there's actually, when we start looking at the book of Daniel, we'll talk about the Ptolemies a little bit more, because the Seleucids and the, the Ptolemies have a lot in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Though they weren't even around at that point, God had prophesied, told about the Seleucids and the Ptolemies coming. It's a really amazing thing. That's the king of the south and the king of the north, okay? So, anyways, but Ptolemies is the king of the south. He comes, rises to power, and he sought to unite... The, the Greek Empire with the Egyptian Empire, and so he sought, he took two um, Egyptian gods, um, Osiris and Apis, and so you can kind of see Osiris in the beginning part of that, Sirah, and Apis, the end part, and he took the two names, he blended them together, and since so the Greeks were opposed to having um, gods that, that had animal parts on them, you know, like the Sphinx and stuff like that, he, made, he anthropomorphized it, which means he put human faces to it, and so it made, it made Seraphis look like this. And so this, though it was, in a sense, a Greek god, it really wasn't a Greek god, it was an Egyptian god. And so they had uh, temples to four Greek gods, purely Greek gods, they had a temple to a, a blended god, if you would, and they also had temples to Roman, Roman emperors, okay? They were known as a, 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 ne, a Neocolus, Neocobolus, anyways, and that is one of the cities that had these temples. Now, they were noted, not during this time that we're looking at, but a little bit, even a little bit later on, because they had three temples. At that time, they would have one. They would have the temple to Augustus. Caesar Augustus had a temple. After him, this is the, the, the picture right there, is the, the um, temple of Trajan. And so Trajan had one, then later it was Cacala, had one as well. And so they were noted as, as having all these temples that were there. They were 
just a hotbed of religion, or if you would, a hotbed of what? False religion. The, the, the worship of man. And so, he goes on and then says, not only do I know where you live, but I know your faithfulness. I know your faithfulness. I know how you have held my name. That in all these areas where my name is being squelched, why would Christ's name be being squelched? I mean, think about it. Wouldn't this be a, a, a pluralistic society? Because they have multiple gods, right? I mean, they've got, you know, bring it into our day, they've got, they've got uh, Allah, they've got uh, Buddha, they've got Confucius. No, they didn't necessarily have them. But in a sense, bring it into our day, they've got temples of all these gods, right? So what would be the problem with having another god? He says he's the only God. Because we go all the way back to the, the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Isaiah prophesied over and over again that besides me, Yahweh says, besides me there is no other God. All other gods are false gods. I am the only true God. And so Jesus was the only true God. And think about it. In the presence of the trueness of Christ, what are the imposters going to do? They're going to try to get rid of the true one. And so he says that in the midst of all this struggle, in the midst of all this persecution, you have held, you have clinged to my name. Not only that, you have also not denied my faith. You've not denied my faith. Well, what's the faith of Christ? Because it's not talking about faith in Christ, faith of Christ, but it actually literally it's talking about Christ's faith. What is Christ's faith? Well, it's his whole plan. It's the death, the burial, the resurrection of of Christ. It's the fact that God, the Creator God, became incarnate, dwelt among the earth, paid the penalty of our sins, was resurrected to prove that He had the power over death, and now dwells in the right hand of the Father. That's the faith that Paul declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What's really exciting about this, and man, we're talking about a letter that is written to a church, right? to the church which happens to be located at Pergamos. But note in his commendation to them about holding to the faith, what does he say? He talks about a certain person, Antipas. Now this may be just a small little thing in about Antipas who, who gave his life, who is martyr Antipas. Antipas clearly what? Gave his life for Christ. He didn't deny the faith. I don't know how he died. I don't know if he lost his head. I don't know if he was impaled on a stake. But I know that he died for the name and faith of Christ. But what's exciting to me here is that God recorded his name. And Christ is letting you know, I know you individually. I don't just know about Family Bible Church. I don't just know about the Church of Augusta. I don't just know about the Church of the United States. I know about you. And for me, it's an awesome thing when I meditate upon the fact that God loves Bob Corbin. It's not all about Bob. It's all about God. But God said it's all about Bob when he died for me. Because even if none of you were around, Christ would still die for me. And wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Broad is the path. And many there are who are going on. But narrow is the gate and straight is the way 
believe in the way. And few there be that find it. Jesus Christ was a propitiation for the sins, not of my, my own, but of the sins of the whole world. He died for everybody. Everybody in this earth has the potential to be forgiven. They are forgiven, if you would. They just haven't accepted it. They haven't received it. But I know that even if there was only one person on this earth, and not billions, Jesus Christ would have died for me. And that's an awesome thing. And when you are faithful, even if nobody else ever sees it, you die for the name of Jesus in a back alley and is never ever reported in the newspapers. You can be sure that God knows it. And it's put on your account in heaven. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where the rust is going to destroy it and the moth's going to come up and eat it. But rather lay up for yourself treasures in, in heaven. Paul told the Philippians, he says, listen, I, I, I desire fruit that may abound to your account. You may not realize that the things that you do on a daily basis have any eternal impact and any eternal effect. But they do. And God recognizes it. And I want to encourage you, and we're going to talk about that at the very end as well, but I want to encourage you in this, because to me this is, the, this is a huge encouragement. God knows your works. He knows where you live. He knows the struggles that you're going through. He knows the opposition that's out there. But He knows your faithfulness. Now, if it doesn't describe you, that should make you worry. Because He also knows that you don't work. He also knows that you don't stand. He also knows where you live. And so we move then into Christ's challenge to them, which is a, a pretty powerful challenge. He says, Nevertheless, I have th few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. First of all, in the challenge, he gives them a condemnation. The condemnation, first of all, is you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, Balaam, we know, is from back in the book of Numbers, chapter 31, there's more of it, but I'm kind of streamlining here for the sake of time. But it says in Numbers 31, beginning of verse 8, it says, They killed the kings of Midian, that is the, the, the Israelites, the, um, the, the, the men of Israel, killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, and five kings of Midian, Balaam the son of Beor, they also killed with a sword. And the children of Israel took the women of Midian captive with their little ones. Now stop for a moment. Before this passage, when we read the, the account of Balaam earlier in the book of Numbers, we know that Balaam did nothing but what? Bless Israel. Seven times he blessed Israel. In fact, when the, the men of Balak went to him and said, come with us, he says, I can only say what what? What Yahweh tells me to say. Now this is really interesting because there's a lot of debate whether Balaam is a false prophet or a true prophet. But when you first look at it, you say, wow, he must be a true prophet. Because he's only going to do what Yahweh says to do. And then he blesses Israel seven times. And he says, and even when Balak is mad at him and offering all the rewards and says, listen, I brought you all this way so you can curse these people and all you do is bless them. And he says, listen, I told you all I could do was tell, say what Balaam, or what, what, sorry, what Yahweh says to say. So if we end it there, we think, wow, Balaam's a, an okay kind of guy. Struggled a little bit, but he's good. But here we read, 
Balaam is still there with Balak, and he actually dies. In verse 14, we're told, but Moses was angry with the officers of the army because they kept all those women captives, and the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds who had come from the battle, and Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of Yahweh, of the Lord. And so God, Moses comes back and says, listen, when those women, when those Midianite women came and they started to seduce our men, it wasn't just a random act. Rather, it was Balaam, knowing the weakness of, of Israel, who gave counsel to Balak and the other kings of how they could really destroy Israel. You can't destroy Israel with a frontal attack. Why? Because they're God's. And God's never going to curse them. He's only going to bless them. But how you can get to the people of God, how you can get to the children of God, is through the back door. It's through their flesh. It's through their own appeals to their own desires. That you can bring to them and entice them and cause them to be infatuated with other things. And in this case, with women. You can send in your woman, sultry, and seek to lure them and turn them astray. And once their hearts go after your woman, their hearts will go where? <coughs> after your gods. And so Balaam was the one who actually initiated that process. We see in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 to 15, that Peter says, But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they don't understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions, and get this next part, while they feast with you. Wait a second. Before then, we, we saw them as what? These guys we read about in the newspaper, and I mean, these are just rotten, evil guys, right? But who are they? They're people in the church. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained, a heart trained, disciplined, trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Why did Balaam ultimately tell Balak the back door to Israel? Because he wanted the money. Remember, way back in the beginning when, when Balaam first goes to God, right? God says what? You can't go. I don't want you to go with these guys. So he goes back and says, I can't go with you. So the guys leave. The, the messengers leave. They go back to Balak. Balak gets all upset. Balak ups the ante. Right? He offers them more in the contract. You know? I mean, you understand contract things. I mean, as, as business stuff, right? So he sends these guys back with a bigger contract. Bigger bonuses. You know, he says, I'll give you anything. Up to half of my kingdom if you come and do this. You can almost picture Balaam. Saliva starts. The, lip, the, the tongue starts to go. And he says, wait a moment. Let me go talk to God again. Maybe he will what? 
change his mind, right? So what does God say? Go. It's where your heart is. And we don't read it. I'm paraphrasing. Just go. But be careful. Be sure that you only say what I tell you to say. Now, apparently, there was something going on in Balaam's heart. Because on the way, what happened? Well, the donkey didn't speak first. What happened? Ah, the angel of the Lord came and stood in the path. Balaam didn't see it. But the donkey did. The donkey goes to the side, right? And what does Balaam do? He gets mad and he beats the donkey. Three times this happens. And finally, the donkey speaks. Kind of fun, isn't it? And you know what the most amazing part of the whole thing is? Balaam talks back to the donkey. <laughs> I, I just, that always is mind-boggling to me. He doesn't even think, hey, there's something, this is something miraculous going on here. My donkey is talking to me. Rather, he turns around and says, hey, I'd have killed you. And all of a sudden, the angel appears, you know. And you wonder, anyway, we won't go there. That's use the wrong word there. Anyways, we wonder who the real donkey is, okay? We'll just put it that way, okay? Anyways, so Balaam goes, and he does then what he wants. But clearly, his heart this whole time is, is wrong. And we're told, even here, thousands of years later, that there are those who have this same struggle, this same sin that's within them. They're willing to compromise the truth. They're willing to turn away from what they know is true in order for what? The wages that they can receive otherwise. We see the same thing in the book of Jude, verses 10 to 19. It says, But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally. Like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the ear of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They feast with you without fear. Nobody's holding them to, to account. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their lusts, and their mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. Now, there are three different ways of considering this. This error of the doctrine of Balaam. First of all, specifically speaking, it's Balaam's instruction to entice the men of Judah in order to lead them astray or away from God. Clearly, that's what, that's what the doctrine of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam was. Balaam's teaching to Balak was, here's how you can lead people astray from worshiping God. You get them through their flesh. Right? But generically speaking, the Balaam's rebellion against God's revelation was in order to receive the rewards from men. Balaam rebelled. Balaam knew what the truth was, did he? Oh, I hit the button. Anyways, you'll get that ahead of time. And so, Balaam knew what God's word said. He knew what God had revealed. That Israel was to be blessed, and that Israel would be standing, and Israel would not go away. Right? He's the one who said it himself, didn't he? I see a star rising out of Judah. And yet, he rebelled against it, in order to get a little bit more of the world. And so, specifically, practically speaking, to here, to the church, though holding to Christ's name and faith, the church was beginning to be enticed by their culture. Why do I say that? Well, because the second group that we have a problem with... Oh, let me get... I have some more teaching on this. Sorry. I'm, this is one of these nice things about having this up there. It reminds me when I, when I slip, slip past something. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
we read, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer and an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And then we have as well, John 17, verses 11 to 17, where Jesus in his high priestly prayer for the disciples said, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In those two passages, again, we talked about us as, as believers, that we are supposed to be what? Separate from the world. Okay? But not necessarily just the world in and of itself, or else I'd have to go out of the world. But what parts of the world? And that is, again, the things that were of, of Belial, the things that were of the darkness. There is no, there com no communion between light and darkness. And so many times we like to yoke ourselves together. I knew a man years ago who began a company, and he had as his partner an unbeliever. But he felt sure that he wanted to have this company. And so he started this company, but he couldn't start it on his own. He didn't have the capital, so he had his other guy go with him, who was an unbeliever. And you know what happened within two years of having a company? The unbeliever did what an unbeliever would do. He, he embezzled everything. And, and, and went his way. Okay? It applies to so many things. The challenge to us is that we are not supposed to be unequally yoked. Teenagers, you young, young adults who aren't married yet, don't marry an unbeliever just to be married. You'll regret it. Something, so many times you hear people say, but I'm praying for God that I know God will save them. God will bless that. God doesn't have to. Okay? And I'm telling you, there's many people who were in that position. Miss Marsha and I, neither one of us were saved when we get married. And I praise God that he allowed both of us to get saved at the same time frame. Okay? So for us to be able to grow. But the reality is, he didn't have to do that. And there had been great misery coming up through that. Okay? So don't be unequally yoked. Okay? Now let's go back. The condemnation. You have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Secondly, you have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And two weeks ago, when we talked about the church of Ephesus, we talked about this doctrine of the Nicolaitans, if you remember this right. And it came from Eusebius, Eusebius the historian, or Irenaeus, I'm sorry, Irenaeus, not Eusebius. I want to make sure of myself. Irenaeus. Irenaeus, who made the comment that these, these Nicolaitans were wanton. They, they gave themselves over to sexual immorality. And so though they sought to be in the church, yet that they gave themselves over to sexual promiscuity. Where here in Pergamos is a great place for them to practice their wantonness. Because each one of these temples, again, part of their worship practice, their fertility practice, was to have temple prostitutes, both male and female. Okay? And so you could do whatever your little hearts desire by going there and being part of their feasts. And clearly, as a believer in Jesus Christ, right, how many of your sins have ever been forgiven? All of them. Just the ones in the past, right? All the ones in the past. No. All the ones in the past, all the ones in the present, and all the ones of the future. And so, as Paul said, 
in Galatians chapter 5, or Romans 5 into Romans 6, he says, so should I continue to sin that grace may abound? And then he says what? God forbid. May it not be so. The reality is that if you live like that, if you live like that, what you're really saying is what? You really don't fully understand the love of God to begin with. You don't understand what God's grace is all about. Because if you really did, you wouldn't be seeking to take his grace and his love through the sewer. In, when, in Sunday school, when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll look at this a little bit more, but Paul says to him, he says, that you shouldn't be joining yourself to a, a harlot. Because don't you know that if you are in Christ and you join yourself to a harlot, that you're joining Christ to a harlot? It shouldn't be the case. And so, so Christ comes down very adamantly upon them. Now, a little aside as well in that, the, the intensity is, why is this so intense? Well, when God created the heavens and the earth, six 24-hour days, just make sure everybody's on that same page, right? And the seventh day he rested. We now go in chapter 2, where we're told a little bit of a parenthesis of what he did on day 6, right? And when he, he scooped the, the earth and he made man and molded man, he breathed into him the Ruach, the spirit of life. And he put the man in the garden to, to, to till the garden. And then after he put him in the garden, he said to him, he says, listen, you can eat of any tree in this garden you want to, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat of it you shall surely die. But there was another special tree in that garden, this tree of life. So he had the tree of life and the tree of death. So he's in the garden, and God looks at man and says what? It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper for him. But before he did that, he brought all the other animals that he created to Adam, so that Adam could name them. And then after he names them all, he puts Adam asleep. And he takes his rib, or part of his side, and he makes the woman. And he brings Eve to Adam, and Adam says, Oh, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You know, and so she shall be called woman. And it says, For this reason, a man shall leave, his father and his mother shall be cleaved to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. They were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Right? Why did God see a need in Adam? And then just kind of space out, you know. I mean, I could see me doing this. I have, you know, I think if they labeled people with ADD back when I was a kid, I would be clearly labeled that. I mean, I, I have a tension deficit stuff. You know, I, I'm very easily distracted. And so, but I don't see God doing that. I, 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 I can't see labeling God ADD. You know, I don't see that he was there with, 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 um, with Adam, saw Adam's need, and then said, oh, yeah, wait, wait, we're going to name the animals first, you know. And then he went over there and said, oh, wait, wait, no, I was going to make Adam a partner. Oh, what am I thinking? Why do you think that God brought those animals? That's exactly right. So Adam would understand that he was missing something. When, as he brought all those animals past, there was the male and the female. They all had their companion. They all had their partner. Only Adam, there was no helper found, is what we're told. And so Adam realized that he had a need. He needed a completer, if you would. And so God made a completer for him. But what's interesting then is that right on the heels of having that completion, we're told that for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Now, we don't want to go fully there, but you know when you think of that passage, what do you think that that passage means? Physical. We think that there's a oneness of flesh that's happening there. But do you know the only other time that that passage is quoted is in Matthew 19, okay, talking about marriage, and in Ephesians chapter 
5. Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says to the, to the wife, says, Wives, submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord, that you should submit even as the church submits unto Christ. That's how the wife is supposed to submit unto the Lord. And then he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, right? And then he goes on and talks about how the man, that no one ever yet hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, even his own flesh. And that for this reason, so does Christ the church. And he says, now this is a great mystery. Now listen to this. This is a great mystery. Remember we talked about this in Sunday school, how Paul likes to open up these mysteries to us. Now this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Well, what did he speak that was about Christ in the church? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall be cleaved to his wife, and these two shall be one flesh. Now this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking about Christ in the church. That union that you picture as the most intimate of unions really is a picture of the intimacy that's supposed to be between Christ and the church. And so monogamous relationships are decreed by God because of the fact that I and my wife are the greatest testimony on this earth of Jesus Christ in the church. That people should be able to look at me and... I'm an inadequate, very inadequate at this. But they should be able to look at me. And I'm working on this. They should be able to look at me and see how Christ loves the church. They should see how I treat my wife and say, wow. They should see how my wife submits to me and say, wow. That's what the church is supposed to look like. That's what Christ is supposed to look like. Do you know it doesn't tell the wife to love the husband. It says the wife submit. It tells the husband to love. Do you know why that is? We love him because he first loved us. Man, if, you got a, if your wife ever has a problem loving you, don't come and say to me, my wife just doesn't love me. Because here's the, here's the counsel you're going to get. Go in the bathroom, turn on the light, look in the mirror, point your finger at the guy standing there looking at you, saying it's all your fault. If you learn to love her like Christ of the church, she won't have a problem loving you back. If your wife ever has a problem loving you and respecting you, it's more than likely because you don't respect and love her. <coughs> Sorry, we're off the Pergamus thing, are we? We're not off the Pergamus thing. I think this is what Pergamus is all about. That's why it's so important for us to be careful in this sexual promiscuous culture that we live in. Guys, and ladies, I know you're not void of this, okay? So you just kind of glean from the side, but this is... This is my heartbeat with the guys. You may not commit adultery physically, but Jesus says if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. God wants us to be pure, not just physically, not just from going to the temple, but offering ourselves, even inwardly, to the devil. If it's not of God, it's of the devil. It's satanic. When we give ourselves over to that idolatrous, not adulterous, but idolatrous relationship. It's because we're worshipping our own flesh and we're worshipping the, the, the gods of fertility. And we're submitting to the improper use of God's creation. We're bowing at the altar of sexual immorality and sexual idolatry. The battle is in the mind, guys. Don't sit there and say, oh, because I'm, I'm, I'm good out there, I'm okay. 
If you're struggling at all, I don't care what part of the day it is, in your mind, you're still the, the, the battle's still to be waged. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to, bless after, not to look after a woman. The two hardest things that there is in our culture today is to be a woman who wants to submit under her husband as the, Christ is supposed to, as the church is supposed to submit unto Christ in a culture that tells you to burn your bra, be in your own person, and, you're, and you don't need him. You can be the head of your own house. Or to be a man that desires to be pure in a culture that flaunts the flesh and says that this is okay. We like to, to set our standard above the world, but we need to be looking at God's standard. A lot of the, and I'm not going to get off on clothing and stuff like that, just a little bit. A lot of the things that we, we wear, we wear because the world says it's conservative, not because it's okay. We think as long as the world thinks it's conservative, we must be okay. But let's look at God's standards and say, is it modest according to the standards of God? Or is it possible that even by wearing this, I'm causing my brother or my sister to stumble? I've seen a lot of women who can wear dresses that are slinkies. I'd rather have them wear pants. Does that make sense? There's nothing worse for me, one who struggles with lust of the flesh, and I've been honest about that. That's my biggie. Lust of the eyes, I, I struggle with that too. Pride of life, clearly I can struggle with that too. But lust of the flesh, I mean, it's there. I'm a guy. To, to, to be up front and to have somebody walk in and I have to turn away. Because while I'm seeking to serve the Lord, I've got to struggle with my own thought processes. You'd be amazed at how many things are going through my mind as I'm teaching right now. I'm thinking the Steelers are really going to crush the Cardinals. Yes! Um, anyways, um, I'm sorry, that just, it bursted out. It was just in there. Anyways, um, it's a bird. They are birds. They're going to fly away home. Anyways, so, um, but seriously, there's, a, it really isn't processing back there, but, but it must be right behind there waiting to come out. Anyways. There are so many things, and you know that while you're in meetings and while you're talking to people, how the, the thought processes go on. Those are the thoughts that we need to take captive. You have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam and hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And as Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 5, he says, listen, he said, this guy's doing something that even the Gentiles would think is wrong. And you're putting up with them. You're letting it go on. You're glorying in yourself. Put the guy out. So that his flesh will be destroyed. Hand him over to Satan. So his flesh will be destroyed, but his soul will be saved. This condemnation is very big to me. I think it's so much a struggle that we struggle with today. I hope you've got that impact from me, that, that heart out of it. And men and ladies, we are all people, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, have got to have the burden, a burning desire to be pure before God, to be holy as He is holy, to be set apart as He has called us to be set apart. With the condemnation, there comes a command. What's the command? It's the same command that Jesus Christ has given from the, His first message on the earth. And what is the message, y'all? Repent. Repent! Change the way you think! Repent! And if you don't repent, I'm going to come suddenly and fight against them with my sword. <laughs> I'm going to come. I'm going to personally going to come. If you guys don't handle this, 
I'm going to come myself and fight the battle. Not only to the church of Ephesus did he say Ichabod was going to be written on the door, that the glory was going to be removed. But the church of Pergamos, he says, man, I'm going to come myself. This is my own personal battle. Because this has to deal with me. God does not want us to be a part of adulterous physically, or adulterous emotionally, or adulterous spiritually relationships. He wants us to be pure before him. So Christ's challenge. What's Christ's promise? This is exciting as well. This is the, this is the, this is the cream, cream here. I mean, if you thought the rest of it was good, I see some of you yawning on me. But if you thought, if you thought the rest of it was good, it only gets better from this point on. Here's Christ's promise. He gives them two promises. First of all, he says, to those who overcome, I'm going to, get, I'm going to give you to eat from the hidden manna. Well, we know where that hidden manna comes from, right? It comes from the Old Testament as when God fed the children of Israel. And in Exodus 16, we read that Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be what? To be kept. There are so many debates right now about where is the Ark of the Covenant? I'll tell you. I don't know. Anyways, I don't know. I haven't got a clue. But you know what I do know? The manna has been what? Kept. And God knows where it's at. Amen? No. That's thrilling by itself, right? Because he's talking about the hidden manna. But we know, because the mysteries are being opened up to us, right? We know that this is just the physical manna. But there's a manna that goes beyond this manna. And the manna that God is going to give us to eat from is not just this manna, but rather it's the true manna that we read about in John 6 where Jesus says, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate what? Manna in the desert, in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread to eat from heaven, from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Moses, surely I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father, note, note the, um, the, the, um, uh, the tenses of the verb, excuse me, of the verbs are important. Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then he said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus said, I am the hidden manna. You get it? I am that hidden manna. I am the manna that is to come. If you eat from me, then you'll have it. Jesus says, listen, if you overcome, I'll let you eat from me. Last week, we talked about the trials, remember? A little, a little excursion on trials and tribulations and temptations. And we talked about that if you go through the trial successfully, or if you go through that, that troublesome situation, that periosmos, successfully, then it was a trial, and it revealed your faith. It revealed Christ in you. If you failed in the periosmos, in that troublesome relationship, then it was a temptation. 
and it revealed sin in you. Okay? Same, same thing, James chapter 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, all the same word. Temptation trial, all the same word. Okay? It's how you go through it. How you come out of it. That proves which one it was. If you overcome, same scenario, same comment being made. If you overcome, God blesses you. God promises you that he's going to feed you even more. You're going to be able to grow so much more as you come through these things. You think, oh, I don't know how I'm going to get through it. He'll sustain you through it. And then when you get through the other side, he'll even strengthen you more. He'll give you special food to eat. You'll be able to see things and learn things and, and read of things that you'll never have been able to understand before. And when ultimately, when you get to heaven, the manna is ultimately there. Christ himself, the manna. You will have eternal life. You will be able to eat from life itself. I believe I have eternal life now. But the reality is, even though I know that you can't kill me and that I'm going to live forever, <coughs> that the, actual, the actuality of it isn't going to happen until when? When this thing, this tent that I live in, ceases to exist. When I, you think, people say, I die. I haven't really died. My body ceases to exist. It stopped functioning here on the earth. I then will transcend to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And at that moment, my eternal life, though it's positional, right now will become practical. It will become actual. And he will give me to eat of that tree of life, that manna that is there that will give life forever. It's an exciting thing. That's not even the most exciting part. He says, to those who overcome, I will give a white stone. I'm going to give them a white stone. A white pebble. A, a little white stone inscribed with a new name. I can tell you honestly, until this week, I didn't fully understand that. Back in those days, they would use stones for multiple purposes. They would use them to, to, um, to count. They would use them to, um, uh, to vote. And um, you have verses. This is one of them. I thought I had one of them up here. So ignore that for a moment. Um, but in Acts chapter 1, when it says that they were deciding upon a new disciple to, to, to take the place of Judas, and they chose Matthias, that they cast their what? Their votes. Okay? Well, and they cast the lots, and they voted. Well, what they would do, the word there, and I never realized before, I and mean, I preached on it before, but I just never capitalized upon that word. I never went through it. It actually is derived from this word stone, this, little, this word for the, the, the pebble, the stone. They would have little stones. One was white, one was black and casting judgment. Black, if a black stone was cast, you were condemned. If a white stone was cast, you were acquitted. And so, if you were voting on something, it was a yes-no vote. The white meant yes. The black meant no. They would also use them in counting. And so, for example, later on in the book of Acts, when it says that when the, the people, when they were saved, they brought all, all their witchcraft stuff, and they burnt it, and then they said it was, it was valued at, and they counted and numbered it. They used, used the pebbles to number as well. So the idea of, um, back in the book of Daniel, when uh, Belshazzar was standing there, and the, and the hand of God came out and was writing on the wall, and it said, many, many, take what will farsen. It says, you've been counted, you've been counted, you've been found wanting, and now the Persians are going to come and destroy you. But you've been counted, you've been counted. It says, many, many, many. Twice. Twice is told. You've been counted. You've been counted for sure. You have really, your life has been what? Tallied. 
Your life has been put in the balance. And you are found wanting. Wouldn't it be incredible if God put his finger down the wall for, for us? If you're laying there in your bed one day, and all of a sudden his hand came out of nowhere, and start writing on the wall like Jesus writing on the dirt for all those Pharisees and all those chief priests who were there with the, the prostitute, and he started writing all your sins on the wall. Do you know that that's what's going to happen at the great white throne judgment? We're told in Revelation 20 that, that there at the great white throne, the dead, small, and great are going to be there. And, and there will be books that are there. And everybody's works are going to be written, be read from the book of works. And so there's going to be just a whole anthology. I mean, there's just going to be books upon books upon books. I mean, more than encyclopedias. We probably each have our own book. Anyways, and so we stand before him and, and all these, the dead and small and great are going to hear everything, what they've done, writ, read in front of them. But over here, there's going to be what? A singular book. The book of life. And we're told whoever's name was written in the book of life would not have any part in the second death. The lake of fire. These works are read. Now, I understand I'm not going to be at the great white throne. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, I still am going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, where I'm going to give an account for what I've done in my flesh. And so as those works are being read, it looks more and more like what? <coughs> black stones, black stones, black stones. Right? But in the end, Jesus Christ stands up and says what? If you are mine, if you are true, to him who overcomes, I'm going to cast my white stone. I'm going to give you the white stone. And on that white stone is going to be written a new name, which nobody but the ones who receive it will understand. Will it be a new name for me? Maybe it will be. Maybe it's my new name. Will it be his name? And only those who receive one of those stones will understand the name? I, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. You know what's exciting is? I get the white stone. I don't get the black one. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, right now today, there is no condemnation to you. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor Angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I am in Christ, then I am reconciled to God. I am forgiven. I am acquitted. There is no condemnation. And so I ask you, clearly, we live in a culture that would rival that of Pergamos. How would the Lord describe your sanctification? How would the Lord describe our sanctification? If, if our church was to be described, how would it describe us? If you individually, Antipas, <coughs> were to be recorded, how would you be recorded? If you were to stand before the judgment seat of Christ today, 
what color of stone would you receive? Have you been cleansed by the blood of Christ? And finally, believers, be encouraged. The Lord knows your works. He knows where you live. And he knows and will reward your faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a full faith in you. Lord, I pray that we would be firm to the end. Forgive us, Lord, for the distractions which we allow to come into our lives. Lord, for being enticed by the things of the world. Lord, I pray that we would put on the whole armor of God. That we would have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the feet being shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That we would have on our, our heads the helmet of salvation. and We would have the, the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we would pray without ceasing, Lord. And we would be equipped and ready to stand in the midst of the, the wiles of the devil. <coughs> Lord, clearly, we live in a day in which true faith is under attack. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity it is to know you. And I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity it is to serve you and make you known. Be glorified in our midst, Father. I thank you as well as we, we look at having this remembrance of what you've done for us in your death, your burial, your resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would be magnified as well. And you would use your word, the, the reading of your word, the teaching of your word, Lord, to prepare us for this moment. That we would judge ourselves. That we would not be judged. Lord, that we would seek to be pure before you. For clearly you have said through your apostle Paul that for this reason some are sick and some are even dying. Because they're eating and drinking unworthily. Lord, help it not to be one of us. Take some time to continue to pray. Prepare yourself for communion. Um, we'll close in a moment, but continue to pray on your own and prepare your heart.